Bible with you and invite you to turn over to the Gospel of John in chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning and so we're going to be the month of December, kind of diving into the riches of the first 14, 15 verses that are there. And this morning we're going to get a little outside of that to help kind of set up the context of what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in front of you. We would invite you to use that or take it. If you, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to have that. Well, it's, um, man, it's just a, it's a special day. Every day that we get to gather as the people of God is special. But I love this time of year because it really helps us as family, as a people of God, to see Jesus Christ maybe in, in unique ways that often we forget about. And that, that's the goal. And you know, we talked about already, Advent means coming. It means arrival. And we look back to Jesus' first Advent, His coming, and what that means for us as, as a people of God, what that means for us for who Jesus is. And that, that's kind of what we're going to be chasing through this season is who is Jesus? What, what does the Bible have to say about Him? What, what are some of the characteristics? What does it mean for Him to be our Savior? And it's important as we jump into this series knowing that we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And it's cool because the author of the Gospel of John is the same author as 1 John that we spent many weeks in through most of the fall going through. And you're going to see a lot of themes, you're going to see a lot of crossover uh, that are, that's here. But one thing that's important for us to understand is we talk about the advents of Jesus Christ, the first coming and his second coming is that his coming uh, was long awaited. It was expected. And you're going to see this theme throughout the next few weeks as we kind of pull back into the Old Testament some that, that God's people throughout all of history until the birth of Jesus Christ were looking for a Savior. They were expecting a Christ, a Messiah, the anointed one to come and to make all things right and make all things new. And one of the things that, that we see in the Gospel of John and that's also seen in the other Gospels is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's not quite the person people are expecting him to be. Like they had certain things in their mind about this conquest and all kinds of stuff that he would do. And, and the way that Jesus came, God son, fully God, fully man, came into the world and his ministry was, was not what people were expecting. And so we want to dive into this and say, okay, well, if our expectations might be off, what does it really mean for Jesus to be the Christ? And I, and I think the Advent season for us is one that's easy for us to kind of get our arms around because we all wouldn't know what it feels like to long for something, to expect something, to wait for something, especially in Christmas. Um, I don't, some of you, how many of you would just say, you know, I'm so excited that Christmas is almost here. Anybody? Okay, hands shoot up. We know who you are. I'm not going to ask those of you who are not excited to raise your hands. We'll let the, the Scrooges in the room keep your hands down. But wh whether or not you're a Scrooge, whether you love Christmas, there's probably been a point in your life when you were really excited about Christmas. And you couldn't wait for Christmas to come. Couldn't wait for the arrival of that day to get that present, to see that person, whatever that is. We know what that feels like. But sometimes what we are expecting to happen isn't what fully happens, or it looks a little different. Even this week, um, our student ministry leaders were expecting to receive some information from me, and, and they did. They got an email from me, but the message they got had something that they weren't expecting to see, and I think we have a copy of it here. The text doesn't really matter. What matters is, is uh, the signature. <laughs> 
and what I love about this is if you zoom back out, uh, first off, the autocorrect on my phone must think I'm a heretic. So the first, don't write emails on your phone. But secondly, what I love is if you can see the fine print, it says the message, this message is from Tri-Cities Baptist Church. So it's like the church as a whole endorses this idea that I'm the Christ. <laughs> and I just want to set the record straight for any of you here in this room who are leaders who receive this email, I am not the Christ. And the church endorses that message that I just said. So sometimes what we expect isn't what comes to be. And this idea of the Messiah, the Christ, coming on the scene is not what people expected. So what we want to do this morning is looking at the Gospel of John is is talk about what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What does it mean for him to be the Christ? How do we know that he's the Christ? And secondly, what does it mean for Jesus to be our Christ? And there's no better way, I think, than we can see this than in the testimony of a guy named John the Baptist. And I love this text. I'm so excited I get to spend time in it with you this morning. So if you'd look to God's word with me. Uh, We've already read through verses 1 through 5 on the screen. So let's start in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And it's important since uh, there's two Johns happening here for us to distinguish. So there's the author who is John the Apostle. One of the twelve disciples in Jesus' inner circle of three. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He is the author of this book. The John that he is referring to is John the Baptist. Um, And he just calls him John. But the other Gospels, they use that Baptist or baptizer title. And so there's two distinct guys. But what John is doing is he's, he's helping us see the purpose of the book as being the same purpose of John the Baptist. And that might lead you to ask, okay, well, what is the purpose of the Gospel of John? that he's addressing, well, he tells us in John chapter 20, uh, and this is what he says, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, not Pastor Paul, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John the Apostle gives us the purpose of this letter he's writing, that we would know and we would believe that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Christ. And the word the Christ means the anointed or the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's like Jesus Christ, Paul Mermiliad. The Christ is who he was called to be. It's who he came to be. And so what John the Apostle is writing, the whole book is about, I want to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ. And so the place I want to start proving that is through the life of John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist's life and ministry was to show and be the forerunner of Jesus, who would be the Christ. Let's look at that together. There was a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So almost an identical statement to John 20, verse 31. That just like the Apostle John wanted all to believe that Jesus is the Christ, this is John the Baptist's ministry, if you're tracking with me. The light is Jesus. He, John the Baptist, has come to bear witness of the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John had a really fantastic ministry, but he was not the Christ. He was not the anointed one. He came to bear witness. Well, how did he do that? Well, we see it in the story of his life. So jump down to verse 19. We're going to read through this text together, and then we'll, we'll pull out some principles for us this morning. And this is the testimony of John. 
When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And you can see the significance of what the author wants us to see. He confessed. He didn't deny. He confessed. What was his confession? I am not the Christ. That's my confession too. I am not the Christ. Uh, And that's what John wanted people to know because they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Christ. And John kind of fit the bill. He was a random kind of weird guy and he was coming preaching about repentance. And he amassed this massive following. So it was natural for people to ask the question, are you the Christ? Are you the one we're waiting for? Are you the one that we're expecting? And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And there's promises in the Old Testament that one like Elijah is going to come and one like the prophet, who's Moses, is going to come. He says, I'm not those people. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And I'll just pause for a second. That's a great question that every one of us should ask and answer. What do you say about yourself? Who are you? Why do you exist? What's your purpose? What do you want the world to know about you, is what they're asking. That's a great question that we should ask ourselves. What do we want to be known for? Why are we here? John answers the question. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, verse 23, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he quotes from Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3. He says, you know, this promise, this is who I am. I've come to make the way ready for the Christ, for the Messiah. My life exists to make him known. My life exists to put him on display. I want to make my life less so that Jesus can become more. That was his purpose. Verse 24, now they've been sent from the Pharisees and they ask him, then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. So he's been getting the way ready for Jesus, and now his faith becomes sight. And he says, behold, look, see, exclamation point, stop everybody, check this out. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This guy, he was born after me, I'm older than him, but he ranks ahead of me because he has always existed. He's the one. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came. John's saying, this is the purpose of my life. I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. My ministry was to point to him. I exist for him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34 is his testimony. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the testimony of every Jesus follower. I have seen, I've tasted, I've seen in my life, I've borne witness that He is the Son of God. 
Let's leave the next few verses. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And I would circle, underline that word his. That's really important. These are two men that he's devoted himself into his life. They, he is teaching them. They are his followers. And he looked at Jesus and he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this. And they walked away. They followed Jesus. So this passage unpacks for us our big truth for this morning that's simple and yet profound, and it's this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. This is the purpose of this book of John that we are reading, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is also the purpose of John the Baptist's life. He says, I am not the Christ, but I've come to prepare the way for him. I've come to make him known to us. So that begs two questions that I want to answer in the time that we have left. The first question is this, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? If Jesus is the Christ, what does it mean for him to be the Christ? We are told throughout scripture that there are many false Christs, there are many antichrists, so what does it mean for him to be the one true Christ? We're going to do a little biblical theology in light of what the, John the Baptist has said, and that leads to a second question, and the second question that we'll try to ask and answer is this, what does it mean for Jesus to be our Christ? If he is the Christ, what does it mean for him to be our Christ? And then for those of us who proclaim that he is our Christ, we'll respond through the taking of the Lord's Supper this morning. So let's dive into the first question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? This leads us to our first big idea of the day. For Jesus to be the Christ means that he is three things. The promised Savior, sacrificial Lamb, and the Spirit-filled Son. For Jesus to be the Christ means that he is the promised Savior, sacrificial lamb, and spirit-filled son. Let's start with the promised Savior. Let's reread verse 23 together. It says this. They ask him, who, John the Baptist, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And this is his answer. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way, and this is important, circle underline, of the Lord. I've come to prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. Who is that? Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Who is the Savior? Well, He is the promised Savior of God's people and of the world. He's the Savior that's been promised all throughout the Old Testament. The Rescuer is coming. We are broken. We are enslaved to sin. A Rescuer is coming. And this isn't just something that John picks up on, that this is the message of the Old Testament, is that there is a promised Savior who's coming. It starts in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3, everything goes haywire. Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they sin against God, sin breaks them, sin breaks creation, sin breaks us, it distorts everything, and all the world falls into ruin because of the sin of mankind. And they are in need of a savior. They are in need of a rescuer. And in the middle of one of the darkest passages in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God shines a light of a promise of hope in Genesis 3.15, which says, I will put enmity, I will put warfare, strife between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in the moment where all hope is lost, God promises that hope's coming. That there's going to be a man 
born of a woman, a virgin woman, who's going to come and he will crush the head of serpent, the serpent, Satan. And so all the Old Testament, when we read Genesis through Deuteronomy, through Job and Psalms and Proverbs and all of the history of the kings, all throughout that we should be looking for the Messiah. That's what God's people were looking for. They were looking for this promised Savior. And so we look at people like Abraham. Will he be the Savior? And he makes some pretty big mistakes. No, he's not the guy. And we look at Moses. There's no one like Moses, and yet he does some pretty dumb things as well. And we look at people like David, and we look at all these different people, and all of them fall short. Who is going to be the Savior? Who is going to be the son of the woman who's going to redeem mankind? But as we go through the Old Testament, we get more pictures of what he's going to be like. And I'll just give you a couple. One, he's going to be the son of David. He's going to sit on an everlasting throne as one of David's sons. We see that in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13, that God makes this promise. Another promise is that he's going to be a baby. And this baby who is meek and mild will have all the power, all the authority. Isaiah 9, 6 says it this way, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Where there is no peace, he's going to bring peace. He is the promised Savior. He is the promised Rescuer. And John the Baptist is saying, that guy is who I'm here to point to. He is the Christ. And I think inside all of us is this longing for a Savior. We have been hardwired as a people to hope in a Savior. We love stories about heroes, stories about saviors. Some of you in here might enjoy the Marvel movies, the Marvel stories. And I was reading this fact the other day, which just blew my mind. The latest Marvel movie, the Infinity War movie that was so big, internationally grossed. Two million or two billion, sorry, with a B, forty-six million nine hundred nine thousand six hundred and thirty-six dollars worldwide. Two billion dollars. Which makes me ask the question: Why do we love hero movies so much? I think the answer is because we know deep down inside we're unbroken and we need a hero. We need a savior. The human heart, the human condition was hardwired with this need for a rescuer. So we love stories about our savior. And God, through John the Baptist, is helping us see that the savior is the Christ. And Jesus is the savior. But not only is he the promised savior, secondly, he's the sacrificial lamb. Look at verse 29 with me again. So John finally sees Jesus coming. And this is what he says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, we would expect a Savior to be a conquering king, to bring in an army, to defeat the enemy and win the day, but, but he's more than a Savior. He's the sacrificial lamb. He, he is the sacrifice for your sin, for my sin. And this too was, was promised. In Exodus chapter 12, God gives his people the Passover. They were in bondage to the king of Egypt, they were in slavery, just like we are all in slavery to sin. And the death angel was going to come and destroy the firstborn. And, and God tells his people, there is a way of rescue, there's a way of escape, but it's only through the blood of a lamb. Exodus chapter 12, 
It says that after they kill the lambs, that they will take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost of the house where they eat. The blood will be a sign on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So for God's people to be rescued from the death angel, blood was required. Leviticus chapter 16 talks about the day of atonement. And for the people's sin to be atoned, there had to be the death of the goat. There had to be a death of a lamb. And even the prophet Isaiah knew that. And he said this in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the promised Messiah, the iniquity of us all. And listen to this, verse 7. He, the Messiah, the Christ, was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Friends, brothers, sisters, when John saw Jesus coming, his mind went back to Isaiah 53. This is him. This is the guy whose blood's going to be shed. He will be slaughtered for you and for me. Friends, Jesus didn't just die on the cross for the sins of the world, he died on the cross for your sin. His blood wasn't just shed for everyone. His blood was shed to save you because the only way that we can be saved as people who are unjust and who have sinned against the holy God is that a holy God must take that punishment. Justice demands that sin and wrongdoing and evil, there must be atonement. And so God himself became a man and became a sacrifice. He died. His blood was shed for you and for me. And when John sees Jesus coming, all these pictures of the sacrificial system, all the lambs, all the goats, all the bulls, all the blood, this is the guy. He's not just the Savior, he's the sacrifice. But he's not just the promised Savior, and he's not just the sacrificial lamb, but the third, he's the Spirit-filled Son. This might be the most important one within this text that, that signifies that Jesus is actually, in fact, the Messiah. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, that's really important. It remained on him. If you circle or underline, that's an important word. And here's why. Because of mankind's sin, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, God's Spirit did not indwell the lives of his people in the Old Testament. There are moments when God's Spirit would come and fill someone for a mighty work. So like King Saul, that happens. Samson, the Spirit of God, rushes upon him and he's able to defeat his enemies. Even David the king, he acknowledges this in Psalm 51 when he's praying his prayer of repentance and he's crying out to God and he says, don't take your spirit away from me. Because before Jesus came, no one was filled with the Spirit of God permanently. It was only by a moment here and a moment there. But in the Old Testament, there's this promise that one day the Christ, the Messiah, is going to come. And not only is he going to be the Savior, not only is he going to be the sacrifice, but he's going to put a new spirit within God's children. And this promise is in Ezekiel chapter 36. And it says this in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Look at verse 27. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there's this promise that one day the Messiah is going to come, the Christ is going to come, and he's going to give them a new heart, people a new heart, but he's also going to put a new spirit in us. And then John the Baptist sees Jesus. Jesus is baptized by John, and when he's baptized by John, the Spirit comes down, the Holy Spirit, on Jesus. But what happens? He doesn't leave. He remains. Keep reading with me. Verse 33. He says, I myself did not know him. He's saying, I didn't know who the Messiah was. I didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. But he who sent me, talking about God, to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. There it is again. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God tells John, hey, if you want to know who the Christ is, you will know him because you will see my Spirit descend on him and stay on him. That is the sign that the Christ has come. It's not happened to anyone else in human history, but it has happened now that Jesus, the Son of God, receives the Holy Spirit in his baptism and that Spirit stays on him. Verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. How did John know that Jesus is the Son of God? Because God's Spirit came to indwell Jesus Christ. And this is good news, friends. God doesn't just make good people better. He makes dead people alive. And the way that he makes us alive is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't just live lives doing our best when we become Christians, but God's Spirit lives inside of us. And this is the promise of new birth. This is the promise of new life. This is what happens in God's people is that we receive God's Spirit living in us. Jesus himself said, it's better for me to go away and for the Helper to come. There's a pastor named J.D. Greer, and he said that God's Spirit in you is better and greater than Jesus beside you. And this is the promise that we see happening and coming to life here in John chapter 1, that Jesus is the promised Savior. He meets all the criteria. He is the sacrificial lamb. He'll lay down his life for the sins of the world. And he is the Spirit-filled one whose God's Spirit lives inside and who will make many brothers and sisters, the children of God, be filled with His Spirit. And so if Jesus is the Christ, and I just want to say, friends, He is. It's not if, He is. Whether you believe it or not, He is. And I'll just, again, just pause. If you're here this morning, and you've never turned from your sins and turned to Jesus as Savior, He is the only way of salvation. He's the only one who can satisfy the longing of your soul. He's the only one who can rescue you from you. And he paid the price for you. Trust him. Believe in him. Turn to him this morning. And so that leads us to the second and last question. If Jesus is the Christ, what does it mean for Jesus to be our Christ? If he is our Christ and his spirit lives inside of us, How do we know that? What should be true of us? And I think there are three things that we see from John the Baptist's life that should also be true of us. And I pray it would be true of you. Pray it would be true of me. I pray it would be true of this church. So let's walk through these and then we'll respond to the table. 
big idea. When, when Jesus is our Christ, first, we see ourselves as unworthy to be called his servants. When Jesus becomes your Christ, you see yourself as unworthy. Look at verse 27. It says, Even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to tie. I have that underlined in my Bible. See, John's saying that untying someone's sandal strap, that was the menial servant's role, like the lowest of the low. That's what they did. They would take the shoes off and clean the feet of the master. And John, in light of who Jesus is, says, I am not worthy to do that. I'm not worthy to untie a shoe. I'm below that. You see, when the gospel captures our hearts and we see who Jesus really is, we see ourselves for who we really are. We see our need. We see our brokenness. We see how beautiful he is. And it wrecks us. It, it, it causes us. It humiliates us in the best sense of the word. And this happens all throughout scripture. Peter sees Jesus, Luke chapter 5, and he says, get away from me. I'm a sinner. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets this picture of God. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Like he falls down. Like when we have an encounter with the gospel of God, it wrecks us. Friends, has that happened to you? Have you seen your sin for what it is? Have you seen God for who he is? And it keeps wrecking us. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 3.1, Jesus asked John to baptize him. And John says, no way. I can't baptize you. you. You need to baptize me. He says, I'm not worthy to do that. John knew who he was in light of Christ. When Jesus becomes our Christ, it humbles us. But not only does it humble us, second big idea, when Jesus is our Christ, the testimony and story of our lives becomes Jesus, only Jesus. When Jesus captures your heart, you long for your story to reflect his story. See, this, this was John's testimony. This was his witness. And we know what the word testimony means. It's to bear witness. It's to bear testimony about something. And in John's life, his purpose was to make Jesus known. He traded his story for Jesus' story. And even in verses 6 through 8, I won't read it for the sake of time, but we see this. He, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. Friends, does your life exist to make Jesus known? When the gospel captures your heart, when the gospel captures my heart, we, we long to make him known. We want our story to be about him and him alone because he becomes everything to us. He's the priceless treasure. One of the things my wife really enjoys doing this time of year at Christmas is she loves Christmas puzzles. I don't know if we have any puzzlers in the room, but you enjoy like doing that as a pastime. This time of year, she loves like a good Christmas puzzle. And, and if that's you, could you imagine you're opening your present on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, whatever your tradition is, and you open that up and you have this 5,000 piece puzzle and you're so excited, you open the box, your family's watching you, and you kind of shift through all the puzzle pieces, and you pull out one that you just think is beautiful and amazing, and you hold it up, and you say, thank you, thank you, I love this puzzle piece. This is an amazing Christmas present. And then you take that puzzle piece, not the puzzle, but the piece, and you frame it up on the wall so that everyone who comes in your house can see the piece. It's a little ridiculous, right? No one would do that. Friends, we do this all the time. 
the puzzle piece is, made to, is meant to be put together with all the other pieces to display a canvas, a picture of something greater than itself. So do we. And what sin causes us to do is it causes us to grab a hold of the little story of our life and invest everything that we are and everything that we have into making our story known, making our story great, authenticating ourselves. And it's just like running around with a little puzzle piece, and that's our lives saying, I'm going to live for this. But that's not what John did. John said, I'm going to take my piece, and I'm going to put it on the picture of Jesus. And you know what happens when puzzle pieces all get put together? No one sees the piece anymore. What do you see? The picture, the canvas. You don't notice the individuals, you see the whole. Friends, this is what we have been called to do. This is what our lives exist for. Not to point to ourselves, not to point to the peace, but to point to the whole, the bigger story, the story of God, who Jesus is. And when the gospel captures your heart, you long to do this. And friends, this is a tension because our hearts aren't hardwired that way. We're hardwired to be beheld, to make the story about us, to co-opt it, to steal it. But when the gospel captures your heart, you lay aside your story for a better story. Whose story are you trying to tell with your life? What does your life point to? But in order for Jesus' story to be put on display, something else has to happen. This leads us to the last truth. When Jesus is our Christ, last idea, sorry, we long to point others away from ourselves and to Him. Listen to this. We embrace insignificance so that He can be seen as most significant. Look with me again in verse 35 through 37. This is amazing to me because this does not happen apart from the Holy Spirit inside someone's life. No one does what John is about to do in verse 35. Like, this is amazing. This goes against everything that's inside of us. In verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Two men he had poured his life into. He was their teacher. He was their rabbi. They were following him. They were learning from him. He would have invested his life into them. Look at what he does. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, look, see, set your gaze on the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Do you know what happened that day? John sent his followers to follow someone else. John made his story insignificant so that the story of Jesus could be significant. Friends, this is why we exist. To decrease so that he may increase. And for the sake of time, if you read the rest of John's story in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, do you know what happens? His ministry, which is massive, shrinks and goes down and down again. You know what happens to Jesus' ministry? It gets bigger. To the point that John gets thrown in a jail by himself and eventually beheaded insignificant. And he's even asked about this later in John chapter 3. And this is what he says. And they came to John and said, teacher, 
He who is with you across the Jordan, whom you bore witness to, look, he's baptizing, and everyone else is going to him. Translated, everyone's leaving your ministry, they're following this guy. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, here's his testimony, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Listen to this. This is incredible. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, the bridegroom is here. The bride is here. I'm so happy that he's here. The Messiah has come. The Christ has come. So I need to get smaller so that he can get bigger. My life needed to become insignificant so that he can become significant. I need less followers so that more might follow him. See, when we see Jesus as the Christ, we long to see everyone else turn their gaze off of us and fix it on him. Friends, is Jesus your Christ? And I think it would even be fair to ask the question, why would John choose this path? And I I think the answer is he was modeling something for us that Jesus himself would do. Think about it. Jesus didn't come to earth on a throne. He came in a manger. He lived a meek and humble life. He did not account equality with God something to be grasped. What did he do? He made himself of no reputation. He died as a servant and as a slave. He became less. Jesus became less. Why? So that God might save more. So that the glory of God might be put on display through a rugged cross. That's what Christmas is all about. J.I. Packer says it this way, The Christmas message is that there is hope for ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace, hope with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang from a cross. When Jesus captures your heart, you become less so that he can become more. Has that happened to you? Do you live that way? Has that happened to me? And as we come to the table this morning, that's what we're celebrating. Jesus' humility. Jesus' bleeding and becoming the lamb that was slain for you and me. His body was broken for you and for me so that we might have life. And so we as the people of God, and I pray that you would get this. I pray this would become your story, your family story, our church family story. Just think if a people lived like John the Baptist, that we would become less so that he could become more. We would become insignificant so that he would become significant. What it might do to the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that You sent John the Baptist to point the way to Jesus and that he became insignificant so that we might see that you are everything. May that story, that testimony become true of us as we set our gaze on you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.